two boys sat at a kitchen table doing their homework and an argument breaks out in some of the kid history videos, if some of you have seen them. You know this, AJ. Good. Kids retell stories from their parents. But adults do the acting. They're acting like the kids and they're mouthing the parts with little kid voices coming out of them. And so one is saying to the other, it's oceanology. The retort comes back quickly. It's oceanography. No, it's oceanology. It's oceanography. Brett, you don't know what you're talking about. I took a class. It's oceanology. Now, for those of you who aren't oceanologists, it's not oceanology. It's oceanography. But this little boy was willing to fight to the death and even to say to his brother, you don't know what you're talking about when the only problem in the conversation was that he didn't know what he was talking about. And there you have part of the problem with a cursing, criticizing, inspecting tongue. This instrument of speech that God himself used to breathe life into existence. What the proverb says has the power of life and death can also be a revelatory tool. This instrument of speech can show us a whole lot about what we think about ourselves as we are using that instrument of speech to injure others. If I stood before you this morning and I said, you know, I mean, Jesus is dumb, isn't he? I mean, he's he's really rather insincere. Yeah, sure, he helps people. That's only so people think he's nice. He's really kind of worthless. He's a freeloader. He asks people to give him tithes and offerings. He just sits there. Sometimes we talk to him, he doesn't even listen. If I said that to you, I hope that I would be fired soon after you inquired about a few things. But James would have a C by taking quite seriously this whole vision of moms and dads and uncles and little kids and the people that live in other parts of the world and other parts of our country that they actually bear the image of God. That they're royal representations of the Most High. And that when you look at another person, whether that person's really spelt, like you see here, or whether that person, you know, is much larger. Whether that person's black or white or yellow or Asian or Middle Eastern, that person has been breathed into existence and given a stamp. God's likeness. God's likeness, God's image. And so James is looking about in the second place in his book where he speaks about the tongue, this instrument of speech, which really becomes so revelatory. He says, brothers, when you curse someone, 
When you come from a higher plane and you look down on other people, other races, other people in your family, that dude on the street who's asking you for money to buy a serpentine belt, whatever that is, and his family just broke down just out of reach. Have you had this scheme played on you? I have six times. You're dealing with the image of God. When you curse these people, he said it's the same thing as cursing God. This should not be. How can you, with one mouth, sing, praise to the Lord, and at the other side of your mouth say, what a bum. What a worthless individual. How ridiculous. James wants us to see that this instrument of blessing called the tongue, this instrument of flourishing and life-giving, this great potentiality, it can also wound and it can also reveal in a remarkable way. When I was a younger person, newly married, I can remember going on a run with my friend Walter Henniger, whose parents are in this congregation there in Nashville, and I had this epiphanal season where it occurred to me and I can remember saying to him you know Walt I realize that everything that I hate about myself I find myself being critical of and hating a lot in other people and vice versa when I find myself really not being able to stand something that someone else is doing if I turn the mirror on myself it's most often the case that I'm hating that very same thing about myself He said, that's good. That's the Eric Youngblood principle. So I had a principle named after me, but only two people knew about it. And I felt, you know, pretty validated and affirmed. And then I started reading. And I realized that I was like the 400,000th, millionth, gazillionth person to ever realize that. But other people have put it in other ways, such as we see other people not as they are, but as we are. Which is to say that there's a whole bunch of commitments inside of us. There's a whole bunch of preferences inside of us. There's a whole bunch of attitudes and hurts and guilt and shame and judgment and all of that. A big swirl, an amalgamation, an alloy of all these different components. And they affect the way that we see other people. Walt Langeren said it like this. The sins we see best in others, we learn first in ourselves. A gossip, he said, can spot a gossip from a mile away. Watch and see if that doesn't happen sometime. The next time, per chance, you criticize someone. And I realize I'm being highly hypothetical here because there's no criticism that goes on in this lovely congregation. But just for, you know, like just on the way home from church today when you criticize someone. Notice... In that moment, if by chance you're criticizing something you don't much like about yourself. You're acting out of something that's not quite going right in yourself. One of my favorite descriptions of this kind of thing is a woman named Cecilia Overhold. Which is a prophetic name to be given. Cecilia thought that whatever she had was no good by virtue of the fact that she already had it. 
The things she desired were all things that she did not have. And the author, the narrator of this story says, I've always counted being unmarried to Cecilia Overhold a great privilege. (laughs) Because, see, here's the thing about Cecilia. You knew by looking at her that she had a case to make. She thought the whole human condition was a calculated insult to her personally. The fault of certain people in particular. If it wasn't, if she wasn't the President of the United States or Mrs. Rockefeller or at least happy it was somebody else's fault, not hers, her stinger was always out. Cecilia knew how to deliver the killing look and the killing refusal to look. She could give the tiniest little snub that would cause your soul to fester with self-doubt and self-justification and anger. And these things she could pass along to you because all of them were festering in her. She had an internal mildew problem that was always wafting out of her. She had an internal judgment problem, felt incredibly judged. She felt incredibly miserable. And so everywhere she went, the scent of her misery came out and manifested itself in hate and contempt. And contempt is the kind of thing that happens. We all do it. Will you look down on someone? It's what John Gottman, the marriage researcher, said. If I spot it in a married couple, I can predict their divorce. I can predict how long they'll be married. If I see any kind of these four emotions, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, he calls them, stonewalling or defensiveness. I can't remember what the third one is, but the last one. Hey, come on. I can't remember everything. But the last one, blame shifting, that's the third one. Boom. <laughs> if you wait long enough, it'll come. The fourth one, though, is contempt. He says he can watch a husband and wife interact in the love lab at the University of Washington where he studies marriages. He studies emotion as it's being depicted on human faces. And he can tell when the man says a thing and the wife rolls her eyes at him in disdain. They're not going to make it very long because she thinks she's better than him. She thinks he's nothing. She's communicating to him that he does not matter. She's causing him to fester with self-doubt and self-justification and anger. And she can pass all these things along because they're festering in her. Very often, we find that if we are looking down on others, it's because we feel like we're being looked down upon. So if you find yourself cursing your brother, your wife, your neighbor, your children, some guy at work, some class of people, you find yourself looking down on them, you might ask yourself, first of all, why am I doing that? Because James says, my brothers, this ought not be. But second, is it possible that I'm looking down on them because I myself 
have an overgrowth of judgment and condemnation inside of me. I feel condemned, so I must condemn others. I feel second rate, so I must make sure that everyone else feels that way too. I feel like I'm losing the competition to matter and to mean something in the world, so I've got to make sure that other people do as well. One of the main ways that we curse our brothers with the tongue, our brothers, our sisters who are made in the image of God, is showing contempt. And you've heard Brene Brown perhaps say, in Texas there's a great expression, the most contemptuous one, that I've decided I can make a million dollars selling t-shirts that say, if you bless my heart, I'm going to break your face. (laughs) Bless your heart. That's a whitewash of contempt. You pitiable, lamentable little soul. Worthless. Non-contributing. How do you even survive? This instrument of speech shows us much about ourselves when we find ourselves condemning others, when we find ourselves criticizing those made in God's likeness. Is it perhaps the case that we're not finding God's liking of us as his likeness. The psalmist could celebrate with a kind of wonder in Psalm 8 that Beth just ably read. I'm giving you guys long reading assignments these days. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you bother with him? You've crowned him with dignity and honor. You've set him just a little bit below the angels. There's this sense that God being mindful of me means that I matter. And not just me, but my neighbor as well. But, as you know, sometimes that doesn't matter to us. Mattering to God doesn't matter to us sometimes. We think, I've got to figure out how to self-brand. We've been talking about that. I've got to figure out how to make something of myself, how to stake my claim in the world, how to prove that I'm better than someone else. Which is why we have to curse each other. Which is why we have to put other people in their place. Spiritual writers would call that envy. We think of envy sometimes as just wanting what someone else has. But no, envy is wanting everybody else to be just as miserable as we are. Envy is what Iago and Othello said... He has a daily beauty that makes me ugly. It's the sense that if someone else is doing well, that diminishes me. So I am able, therefore, to rejoice with those who mourn and to mourn with those who rejoice instead of the other way around. Do you know this dynamic in yourself? The way Suez Lewis describes it is, It's the way that pride works. See, envy just rides on the back of pride. We've come to believe that pride's opposite, humility, is when you have a beautiful woman saying that she's ugly. Or a brilliant man saying that he's a fool. Of course, that's not humility, that's just lying. But pride does this. It says, I don't just want to be beautiful. I want to be the most beautiful girl in the whole wide room. And that's the Father of the Concords. I want to be the most beautiful. You're not content just to be pretty. You've got to be the prettiest. 
It's when you, you're not content just to have money. You've got to have the mostest money. You're not... That's a word, isn't it? You're not content to be, the, to be a great athlete. You have to be the best athlete. See, pride is the thing that's always making us rank each other because this ranking is what makes us something. And if you don't feel like you're stacking up very well, it's going to make you have a little bazooka, a leveling bazooka of curse that comes out from you against everybody who is a potential threat. And everybody could be a potential threat. Just watch how you react when you hear someone being praised in your midst, especially if they're being praised about something that you care about. You're a mom. You've heard of the expression, mommy wars. There's no actual shooting, is there? But there may as well be. If I came up to you, mom, and I started praising another mom, look at the food she feeds her kids. She grinds her own wheat after growing it herself. Her children have never seen a screen ever. Ever. And they already are virtuosos on the violin and they play the piano, but that's only because they're just four. They haven't learned everything yet. What happens when you hear that kind of praising? Are you saying, that is so wonderful. Can I meet this child and praise her? And praise the mother who helped produce such wonders on the earth? Are you thinking, can I send her a cake laced with arsenic? You do not want good things to happen to her. You want her to fall suddenly and injure herself. Because her greatness is somehow making you feel very little. Because that's the thing that makes you you. See, because the other thing that James would tell us is that the tongue was made to boast. The tongue's made to boast. He says... We put bits in the mouths, mouths of horses to make them obey us and it can turn the whole animal. Or we put in gigantic ships, we put these little bitty rudders that turn the ship and can direct the whole course of the ship just by this little bitty thing. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Now he's talking about the way that the tongue boasts in a destructive way, like a spark that creates a fire that consumes an entire national park. It consumes acres and acres of Colorado. He's talking about a boast that says, I've got to boast in myself. I've got to make something of myself, which means I've got to diminish you. I've got to put you in your place so that I can be something. And if I'm going to be miserable, then everybody around me is going to be miserable. But see, when you start getting inhabited, by the spirit of him who would only do his father's will. Then what can happen is you start to say, wait a second, wait a second. God's mindful of me. And what makes me something is not how good I am at being a dad or a mom, how good I am at raising my family or my business, how athletic I am or how fit I am or how few wrinkles I have or how slim or any of that stuff. What makes me who I am is that I belong to Jesus Christ. I've been fashioned and equipped with dignity. I'm a special creation of His. Made just a little lower than the angels. Set as ruler above, over all the 
creation. God says in one place through the prophet Jeremiah, let him not boast who is wealthy in his riches. And let not the strong man boast of his strength and let not the the wise man of his wisdom. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord. See, God is eager for you to have an identity that lets you be like the Apostle Paul says, if I ever am going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. I've got a tongue that's made for boasting. I am not in competition with anyone anymore because I belong to God. My worth has been conferred on me. You don't earn worth, by the way. It's the maker's conferral of worth that makes you mean something. And God is mindful of you. The majestic God is mindful of you. And as you believe it, you start to imagine, I'm not in competition with other people. They are His special creation as well. We ought to jointly praise Him. We ought to boast in how magnificent He is, how wonderful He is, how He accepts us, even though there's so much unacceptable about us. That He likes us, and that's why He lets us be His likeness. All of a sudden, if my, the people around me are not my competitors, then I can boast about them. I can praise them. I can notice the good that they do, and I can compliment them without thinking that somehow I'm being diminished. You're always going to be boasting in one way or another. Boasting about what you have or do, which John says is from the devil. Or boasting at who has you. At who made you. At who gives you hope and substance as a person. And when you can boast like that, you'll stop cursing other people who have that same boast. Because they're made in His likeness as well. It's the difference between looking up or looking down. When you're looking down at other people, you can't see what's above you. That's why C.S. Lewis in one place said, I've always noticed that, that cranks and malcontents and misfits praise the least. They're always complaining and always griping. But people who are healthy, people who are humble, people who have inner health, praise is just that inner health made audible. Because you're realizing, I'm not in competition with anybody. My identity is not at stake by what I perform or do. It's all based on what's been done for me. So I can praise the God who made me. How majestic is your name. And I can praise those He made and notice the wonder of who they are. Let the tongue that I have, it's made to boast, boast in the Lord and in His good creation and not in myself. So how can you do this? I think it involves two things. One is just taking the time to apply these lenses. When James says, my brothers, this should not be, he's just saying, you're participating in a practice where you haven't thought this thing through. You can't curse somebody that God made and then praise Him who made it at the same time. It's no different than a father who is theoretically dealing with children in the back seat who are insulting each other. Who might say, please do not insult your brother. He happens to be precious to me. I do not like it when you speak ill of people that I like. I like the both of you. How about you do the same? 
And James is just saying, this is the thing you've got to put on. That's why Clyde Kilby in one place said, I'm going to make a discipline of this every day, once. I will stop and I will look at somebody or something and I will not ask what they are, what kind of person they are. I will just be glad that they are. You ever do that? You ever just look at somebody, try to look at somebody that you just can't stand and just put on the lenses like Calvin, John Calvin said, that scriptures are corrective lenses for bleary-eyed old men to help us see the world aright. And put the glasses on and stare at somebody that you normally are inclined to hate, to despise, to criticize, to complain against. And just talk to yourself for a minute. My God, look what you made. This is your special creation. You wanted this person in existence. You bothered and fussed over the creation of this person and made them just so. Even if the image is very deformed and i got to look sideways to see it right. This is something you made. And the second thing is not just looking, but it's holding the tongue. You know, James earlier says this. If any one of you considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. See, he has a theology that says the tongue is actually controlling the course of your life which is very counter to modern psychology. A lot of modern psychology would say this. If you have anger, vent it, baby. But you know what? Have you ever tried venting your anger? Doesn't it just make it all go away? What? Well, it does this. It feels delicious. But in my experience, and I have a lot of it, at venting anger, it just makes me angrier. I get intoxicated with the blind power of the anger. It doesn't make me suddenly feel better. It makes me feel madder. It's a rehearsing of my argument. It's a rehearsing of my self-righteousness. You don't have to say everything that occurs to you. In fact, let me repeat that. Let me rephrase that. Don't say everything that occurs to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the Second World War, had a seminary, an underground seminary at Fickenwald, and he had 25 seminarians there. He wrote this book called Life Together that some of you may have read. It's one of the best works on community written in the 20th century. And he had a rule there. It is expressly forbidden to speak covertly about a brother when he is not present. We're just not going to talk about each other when we're not in the same room. He said, there is a ministry, an important ministry that we provide for one another. It is called the ministry of a holding one's tongue. That's never on a spiritual gifts questionnaire. The ministry of holding one's tongue. You don't have to say everything you think. Especially if it's poisonous, envious, angry, critical, uncompassionate. Since that's a word. Don't. You don't have to say everything you think. And James says you can control your tongue. You can actually start to control your mind and your body. Like a bit can control a big old horse and a rudder can steer the QE2. These tongues of ours can make great boasts, but they're meant to boast in the Lord. These tongues of ours can be held. And I close with this. A great story that maybe you heard this week. There was a fire that broke out in an apartment building and Massachusetts. 
And a woman there, a mother, 23-year-old mother with an 18-month-old child, was in a bind. She was in the third story of this apartment complex and there was no way out. So she said, I grabbed my son and I gave him a kiss. I told him I loved him. And I scooped him up and I jumped. Three stories she jumped, holding her only son in her arms. And when she hit, she hit standing on her feet. But then she collapsed for her vertebrae had been broken. She underwent six hours of surgery. And the doctor said they were not sure she was ever going to walk again. And here's what she said. It's so worth it because he's okay. It's amazing to see him perfectly fine and playing. A mother would jump from the third story and break her back and maybe never be able to walk again, but all the while holding the son and said, it's totally worth it. Who cares about me? He's fine. If you want to have a power source... For seeing people not as you are, but as they are. If you want to have a power source for understanding yourself, not as a person who's judged and unliked by God, take this story and think about your Savior who has scooped you up and He's jumped and let His own back be broken so that you could be okay and has said it's totally worth it. And then think about this, the person sitting next to you. And the person you meet out in the street, the homeless dude who hasn't showered in months, who reeks of alcohol, and the rich dude that you're intimidated by. These are people for whom Christ has died. That he scooped up in his arms and said, I'll be broken, I'll have my body crushed, and it will be totally worth it. What right do I have? Oh God, forgive me. What right do I have to hold disdain or contempt for those that God has scooped up and died for? That He's let Himself be bloodied so that they would never. That's the same argument the Apostle Paul makes. Don't injure your brother for whom Christ died. Make a habit this week in your house, at your workplace, to pause And watch people walking down the street and watch people in your home and think to yourself, that's someone that Christ has scooped up in his arms and has let himself be broken so that they never would. Do I have God's evaluation of things about myself or about them? Or am I missing the boat entirely? You can turn the boat with this little rudder of the tongue that can help you to see with the corrective lenses of God's undying affection, which gives itself so that His people may live. Amen.